Hey everybody, welcome back to A Higher Future. This is UB Simignetti along with my partner in good, Dr. Nicole Gravagna. Hello, Doc. Hi, UB. How are you? Who do we have with us today? Well, we've got, uh, uh, this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. You know, there's a lot of intersections with what Bob Pulver, who is our guest, um, what he's what he's done in his career, what he's aspiring to, um, you know, and what he's doing now. So Bob is a technology leader, a future of work kind of strategist, if you will, formerly working at IBM and then uh, NBC Universal. And I, what I love from from something you said in in one your bio was the future of work is driven by people augmented by technology, and, and I love that. And I feel like that really encompasses a lot of the work that you're doing, and it's something that's near and dear to our hearts, you know, at Interview IA. But first of all, Bob, welcome. How are you? Thank you, thank you. I'm doing great. Yubi, thanks, thanks for having me. Nice yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so talk to us. So let's dive into to that for a second um, sure. it, to kind of kick it off. Like, talk to us a little bit about h- how you you've got to this, you know, this belief, right? This this that that talent and and tech, you know, and people. Like it's it's you know, there's a coexistence there. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I started my career. My first real job was was at IBM down in Atlanta, and. Um, I think as I, when I got that job and I actually started as a, as a contractor and then, cause they were in a hiring uh, freeze at the time, this was way back. Uh, I don't even want to date myself and say how long ago it was, but it was a while ago. And uh, so I just, I noticed yeah. that the way that they were um, identifying talent um, either to, to um, you know, to onboard or to, in terms of leadership uh, development and advancement, it just seemed like it was very, um, either arbitrary or relationship driven, or, you know, there were a lot of biases in the system. And so, so I wound up, you know, navigating my own sort of nonlinear path through uh, different opportunities at, um, at IBM. And a lot of those were sort of bridging, you know, business and technical, you know, challenges, things around systems engineering, building, you know, product management before it was called product management. So managing requirements a lot across a lot of different stakeholders. Um, and so technology was always, um, being introduced, I felt like my whole, you know, 20 plus years at IBM, they were, they were going through some type of transformation the entire time. And so, um, so really I started thinking more deeply about, you know, behavior. I started thinking, getting involved in, uh, enterprise innovation projects, crowdsourcing, uh, collective intelligence, thinking about how do we actually form an optimal team? How do you find the right person for the right role, but also that, they have complementary skills to the other people on the team so that the whole team is successful. And so, um, you know, I also saw challenges in, in performance management systems. I saw, um, and, and so I just felt like, are people really thinking about what motivates people? Are they really thinking about thinking bigger picture about where this person's sort of career trajectory could, could take them? Um, and I just sort of formed my own path and started getting involved in a lot of different um, uh, experiences at, at IBM. So a lot of them were internal, but some of them were client-facing. In fact, my longest tenure at IBM was a, a client-facing role working with IBM Research. So basically helping the sales teams connect uh, clients with what research was working on. So don't just uh, try to pitch them on you know what's on the truck, so to speak, but 
But what's coming down the pike in H1, H2, even H3 kinds of horizons that are going to potentially disrupt their business and their industry? So how do they think about not just product innovation, but business model innovation? How do they streamline processes to save costs? How do they think about um, you know, knowledge management and the um, retaining you know, institutional knowledge? Um, so back then it was around uh, building these, you know, large scale, complex uh, sort of, you know, decision tree, you know, models and things like that. And then how does that start to evolve to, you know, automate some of that? There, I remember a technology called Expert Conversation Builder. And how do you incorporate mm-hmm. the lifetime value of customers and by looking at, you know, their their behavior on a website and you could start, to, you know, and IBM started making acquisitions in, in the commerce space, right? Like how do you, um, you know, sort of follow anonymously how you sort of follow someone's you know digital footprints around a, a website so that you can um, you know increase retention and and decrease you know shopping cart abandonment and and all those kinds of things and so um, so technology in the analytics space just started getting more and more advanced you weren't just looking at structured data you were looking analyzing unstructured data like social mm-hmm. media um, finding sentiment and emotion and, and tone in, uh, in social media, understanding people's profiles. Now, how do you marry that with their actual transactional history and things like that to understand and anticipate what customers might want? Um, so I was always intrigued by um, the, these sort of blends of, of technology um, and, and people. And then, you know, to me, what's much more meaningful is not just figuring out how to sell an extra widget to somebody or, you know, get them to click on another ad. But well, what about people in the sense that people are the source of, um, you know, they are, they are the culture, they are the, the lifeblood of your organization. Strategy doesn't ex- execute itself, right? So, so how do we optimally, you know, go forward and do that in such a way that, you know, computers can do what they do best and humans can do what, what they do best. We've seen a lot of blurring of that of late, right? Because AI is starting to try to do, you know, what we typically assumed were human only, you know, mm-hmm. tasks, right? And I think of things in, in the creative space where it's actually, you know, writing copy or it's, you know, trying to learn and enough to, to be its own artist. Yeah, um, and on that, on that front, you, yeah. so you saw the, the AI renaissance, Right. In in a way, yes. Um, Can you tell us about I, that? Yeah. So, so the way um, I, I guess one of the the interesting experiences again, the, the longest tenure I had was working with with IBM Research, and during that time, uh, there was a research project called Deep QA, Deep Question Answering, uh, that was the precursor to what's now known as IBM Watson. So coming out of this research lab, and it wasn't just the IBM headquarters research lab here in Westchester County, uh, New York, there were a lot of different research labs around the world, all working some on some component of this. Um, But when they, um, so they used to, researchers used to come over to my lab next door and, and talk to clients about some of this, like this is, this is what's going to change the way you operate. And we're working on, you know, they were working on uh, industry specific use cases. They started in the medical, you know, healthcare uh, domain to be like a, um, almost like a second opinion kind of, you know, doctor, mm-hmm. if you can imagine that. And, um, 
and it would basically be trained to there's a set of you know unknown unknowns and then there's known unknowns so so watson would basically learn uh it knew what it didn't know and so then it could then go out and seek that knowledge that it was that it was missing so um i just was fascinated by, by the way that this was was coming about and it made on some level, it made a lot of sense to me. On another level, I was like, I, I'm just not even close to smart enough to be working, to be even in the presence <laughs> well, of these people. Um, isn't but that it was, the idea and, to augment yeah, the intelligence? Exactly. Of right. Exactly. Well, right. that's so, isn't, that, isn't that why they um, they they put Watson on Jeopardy? Wasn't it to sort of ease that you know uncertainty that yeah. we might have with a technology like that? Well, they they. They did that in, that was part of it, I think, but it was also, I mean, keep in mind, this was, um, this was a more sort of generalized uh, intelligence, which people think we, we still have not achieved, right? So, sure. so it was really, I, it was actually what, what IBM used to call a, a grand challenge. So it was like mm -hmm. a, a moonshot kind of thing. They did not, I'm sure some people had some level of confidence that it could do this, but if you think about, if you're a fan of Jeopardy, you know it's not just a matter of coming up with the right answers. You've got to actually click in. Mm -hmm. You've got to have good reflexes to click in, which I think was a controversial topic with with Watson. Um, <laughs> when could it actually click in? Because it didn't have hearing to actually hear the, when the question was finished. Uh -huh. um, but also, you had to just even the uh, the betting part was a whole other sure. aspect. They had to have their own algorithms just to know. Um, in what situations to to bet, you know, certain amounts and, and things like that um, to actually win, uh, come out and, and win the game. Mm. Even if you answered all the questions, you may not win depending on uh, the the betting situation. I can't so, remember. Did he win? It was amazing, he did. Okay. He did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, the, the, we had a makeshift uh, Jeopardy studio in in my office. Um, I got to meet Alex Trebek and and then the guest host who was doing all the mock. Uh, games, uh -huh. I, I forget his name, but um, but yeah, it was it was an amazing uh, experience. But yeah, that that sort of renewed my um, my interest in this intersection of of technology and and, and talent. And so uh, it led me to um, eventually I was I was working in consulting, selling some of these cognitive uh, services, as they called it, basically, you know, Watson-based you know APIs uh, in the social in the social analytics space. Um, and then eventually uh, led to, to um, my last role at, at IBM, which was running this cognitive build uh, mm. program. It was basically this entrepreneurial, you know, program where people came up with, they, they learned what these cognitive services could do. So basically they upskilled the entire organization or at least two thirds of it participated in upskilling and, and you know, cloud and AI um analytics and uh i forget one other category and then uh and then they said okay now tell us what ideas you have to use this technology so everyone went and created an idea they formed a team they pitched it they did crowdfunding they did a shark tank exercise to uh try to get you know buy-in and then uh they were crowdfunding the the best ones you know rose to the top and and pitched pitched to you know industry leaders and to to jenny rometty the, the ceo at the mm -hmm. time and, um, and yeah, and then the pro, so I had an idea that, that I, a team that I led through that program. And then I was asked to actually lead, uh, the program at the end. So like the top 50 teams from around the globe joined me at the IBM world of Watson, um, wow. you know, global event in, in Vegas. And I basically ran a, a pitch fest and 
you know, innovation panels and um, had like, you know, at least 25 different teams all showcasing their prototypes. Some of those, which were of most interest to me, were in the talent space. So how are you using IBM Watson to um, essentially improve um, the, the hiring, you know, and onboarding process? How are you helping to match make, you know, people to, to roles or people to teams? Um, and how can the, I mean, I started thinking, how could this be deployed on a broad uh, scale? If you think mm -hmm. about, you know, not just in the enterprise space, but small, medium businesses that don't have a huge, you know, talent acquisition team and maybe one person wearing multiple hats who's not even just doing talent. Maybe they're doing talent in operations or they're doing talent in strategy or, or what have you. But um, if you think about everything um, from a philanthropic perspective or, you know, um, think about, you know, government programs and things like that, there are so many people out there that have so much potential and they don't even know what they're capable of and they don't know um, how to even get on that path. Right. So mm -hmm. imagine if these programs could scale to the point where you before you filed for unemployment, you took an assessment and it helped you. You know, I know some some governments have, you know, programs like that, but I don't know how much sort of, you know, and, you know, power is is behind it where those people can actually now be parsed um, as a sort of, you know, warm pipeline to, you know, to different companies and, and things like that. But there's a tremendous opportunity to sort of. Uh, level up, um, you know, countless individuals, uh, not really to mention, is. It's, you know, it's fascinating. There was a paper I read recently in the physics, physics and engineering space. It's not STEM. It's, yeah. there's another acronym. And um, they looked at, you know, every field has low performers, mid performers and high performers. And they looked across the field and they looked for women and people of color uh, and, and then separated out white men who traditionally allowed into mm -hmm. the field and yeah. so when you found like at the t very top end of the field the super high performers it was actually quite balanced there were women there were men it was like a two to one ratio and at the bottom yeah. of the field it was like a 20 to one ratio where there just weren't a lot of women or people of color at that lower end of the field and it so it seems to me there's a lot of mediocre and perfectly fine physicists and engineers out there that just yeah. haven't quite made their way through <laughs> that we right. could be tapping because they're probably just perfectly fine yeah there were um i mean there were plenty of studies you know again this goes back a while in my ibm you know sort of mid ibm tenure but you know, I did a lot of investigation around collective intelligence and collaborative decision making and things like that. And study after study from people like Professor Tom Malone from from MIT and um, Professor McAfee, also from MIT and Harvard and, um, you know, countless others that were just like, you are increasing your collective intelligence if you have more women um, and more in, in general, more diversity um, in that decision-making uh, body. And that's why crowdsourcing was so fascinating to me because if good ideas can come from anywhere, then you might as well make idea submissions anonymous because uh, otherwise you have this bias mm -hmm. towards, you know, if I submit an idea and, you know, some executive vice president submits an idea, if you did that blindly, you know, you'd get the actual, you know, reaction to yeah. the, the, you know, the potential of that idea. Whereas 
you know, if that person, if that EVP submits something, everyone's going to be like, oh, you know, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it's like, are you sure? <laughs> Is it really? Or, yeah, that's fascinating. We, we talk about groupthink all the time and, yep. and in terms of hiring, right? And, and you know, it, and also, you know, take the lesson, leave the story. You know, there's too often in, in your example, the, the, we're taking the story of, oh, well, it's the EVP. So of course it's just going to automatically be the best idea. Yeah. And, and, you know, it gets in the way. Yeah. This happened a lot in, um, IBM has, uh, an offering that they used to use internally called jams. Um, it's basically just a, an open online, you know, forum that they have moderators for different topics and, and things like that. And I mean, you saw it almost immediately. I mean, Senior executives joined because they wanted to lead by example and make sure that uh, people knew that you know leadership was taking this this seriously. But the problem was they like would unintentionally you know sort of commandeer you know the the conversation and get all all the likes and you know what do you know the top you know act you know the activity is is um, you know far and away greater where. Um, you know, some SVP or EVP or even the CEO were actually having engaged in the conversation. So it's it's fine that you're you're drawn to that, but you've got to you've got to account for that in your sort of you know yeah. analytics, and and you've got to find other ways to you know elevate uh, promising and engaging topics um, that that came from you know more of a grassroots uh, kind of source. When I was when I was coaching. Mm-hmm leaders, I would always tell them, depending on where you are in the organization, your megaphone gets bigger. So it, it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean you get smarter. It just means yeah. that you get louder. And, <laughs> yeah, right. and I reminded them, like, you have to be super careful when you're shouting into that megaphone because yeah. it can be blinding. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely, for sure. Um, okay. So uh, thank you for all of that. That was a fabulous story. Just hearing about how all of that came about. Yeah. Um, but now I'd like to just talk about this, this idea of, we've been talking about the hybrid new way of going to the office sometimes and being on Zoom sometimes. And um, what are you seeing? It sounds like you have some thoughts on, you know, what companies are going to have to do to stay relevant and, um, and how that's have a vision for how that all will play out in the next couple of months and years. Yeah, I, I definitely think this is a this is a long term trend. I, I think some companies are gonna are gonna wait and see and and you know maybe survey their their employees and and see you know who's comfortable coming coming back and and what do they want or whatever. But the the surveys that I've seen uh, just in the last you know say month or so, um, you know the the evidence is is clear as day. I mean, everyone wants some flexibility uh, that this has afforded them. Um, they, uh, and if they don't get it, they, they're probably gonna leave. I mean, the survey, mm-hmm. multiple surveys have already said, you know, in the neighborhood of 50% of people are going to be, um, you know, either actively or, or looking or passively looking for uh, another role for, for whatever reason. So, so any company that hasn't, uh, isn't communicating well with their employees, they're not being transparent. Um, 
and um, and also companies that don't trust their employees to get their work done and behave like adults, um, you're going to be uh, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have trouble retaining people. You're going to have trouble uh, acquiring uh, talent because people have expectations have completely uh, changed. Um, now, I would say hybrid is going to mean different things to different companies. Um, I was actually just in a conversation on, on Clubhouse uh, this morning talking about this. Um, it is going to mean different things to different companies. It depends on what, what role you're in, maybe what industry you're in. I mean, even a company, if I just use NBC Universal as, as an example, um, you know, if you're sometimes you're in a, a role that you just you have to be there. Right. Like if you're working in a, if you're working in behind the camera at in Studio 8H, you know, recording Saturday Night Live, you can't be home. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're working, if you work at Universal Parks and Resorts, it, you know, it, it was a nice experiment, but the park's open now. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. you yeah. can't, yeah. you know, check tickets and, you know, sell stuffed animals um, from your couch. So, um, so certain roles um, that, that have to go back, um, obviously they need to keep people's, um, you know, wellness, um, you know, top of mind. Um, I think that's, that's mental health. That's, you know, physical health and safety and all those things um, are, are just table stakes, right? Like you've got to have yeah, that absolutely. kind of stuff for, for everyone else in terms of, you know, knowledge work. I mean, sometimes it, it depends again, using NBC as an example, you know, I used to commute to, to 30 Rock, NBC, Comcast, they don't own that building. Their name might be on it, but they don't own the building, right? right? So there's other employers that have people there. It's also a tourist destination. So y you can't, you know, the going to work, the commuting to work is not done in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. There are other people that you need to account for. You need to understand what, you know, Tishman Spire, I think, owns the building. Uh, you need to know what who else is going to be in the building. You need to, you know, it's a it's a massive sort of orchestration, uh, you know, challenge to to figure all that. You've got to have your safety protocols, but what are the protocols that other people in the building um, or the tourists? I mean, you can't stop people. I guess you know if you're on the ground floor or the you know the mall portion on the bottom two floors, um, you know, it's kind of a, a free for all. But but what does that mean? I mean, you could have been. You could have tested yourself and t taken your temperature before you got in the elevator bay, but then you went to grab lunch and then you just exposed yourself to, you know, a hundred tourists. So like, yep. what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Um, whereas if you have your own, you know, building, I mean, it's the same probably in any kind of like co-working space uh, too, right? They're going to have to have their mm -hmm. protocols and things like that. But I mean, if you, if you're in a, a small business, I mean, my wife has an office, but she's got her small companies there's only three of them and they're all you know vaccinated and you know they they check everybody that comes to to visit or whatever but that's relatively safe but i mean the circumstances are going to be different and then people's lives lives are different so you have to understand what are people's um you know commitments and you know what kind of schedule might they they be on and you know it's not going to be everybody well hybrid means two to three three days a week in the office well maybe Maybe it's something totally different yeah. or maybe a certain hours a day. It also might depend on the tasks. You know, Nicole, we were talking before about, you know, whether you can be as effective 
um, you know, in person with, with your team? Well, maybe it depends on what actual activity you need to do. Is in-person collaboration, you know, better to accomplish a task uh, or do it, you know, more efficiently, uh, more creatively, you know, whatever it is, um, you've got to, as a collective, figure out what's the optimal way to get those things done. But not everyone's going to be on the same schedule and everyone needs their own sort of quiet time. Some people may not have quiet time at home. Maybe they have six kids. Yeah, exactly. Right. And pets and, and construction. And, and yeah. I mean, who knows? It sounds, I mean, all of this, like, it's just, I'm sort of getting overwhelmed hearing you talk about all this stuff. <laughs> so I can't even imagine like an organization because if I'm hearing you correctly, and I think we believe this too, I mean, there is now um, a responsibility that organizations have that's 10 times what it used to be pre-pandemic. And, and that's, that's everything from everything you just talked about, to environment, safety, wellness, health. But it's also how they're going about hiring now. So to yeah. your point about those roles that do require someone to be on site, you know, the, the people who were in those roles before, they may not actually be the right people for those roles now. But there are people who do want to be in those roles, who do want yeah. to be out and on site. So, you know, there, there's this transformation that has to occur for organizations to really, truly understand who they're looking for from a talent perspective. And right. it's got to be super clear, transparent and intentional you know, you can't just throw up a job description anymore and say, you know, ticket person at Universal yeah. Studios. Like that's not going right. to work. Yeah, um, yeah. The the JD uh, and again, now that I'm going through, uh, you know, the the sort of candidate uh, experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the JD. Some of the JD. You can tell who's really who's already starting to think more deeply and and broadly about how they're trying to fill, you know, certain roles. I mean, I can tell when something was not all the time, but I, I can, I know a, a copied and pasted, you know, JD when I, when I see one oh, yeah. um, and, and, and even just the way that someone describes something like, you know, definitely need a, a four-year degree. Okay. Tell me, tell me why definitely need, <laughs> you know, 10 years of, you know, HR experience. Well, again, why? So, so that I, know the ins and outs of uh you know some legacy hris yeah. you know system right. that i could probably well first of all isn't that the system that we're gonna that you want to replace right <laughs> or isn't it like what i, I don't understand so yeah. so think about i mean I, certainly i'm always encouraged when i see companies that um even if they just have a blurb at the bottom like oh if you don't even if you don't think you're an exact fit if you you know if you're somebody who's mm -hmm. really got got a lot of drive, you you're a lifelong learner. You 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 know learn. You think on your feet. You you're you know open-minded and adaptive and resilient and you know all these you know sort of soft skill kind of buzzwords these these days. But but at least they're they're trying and at least they're recognizing or at least I hope they are that um, there we need to think about talent sort of matchmaking in, in a different way. You can't just look for people yeah. like you. Right. You can't because then you don't get the diversity of, of thought and, and experience that we were talking about before. Um, you really need to think about you're, you're looking at this job in isolation um, as opposed to thinking about this person is a member of a team. 
right? Their, their OKRs or whatever their goals and performance are, are going to be part of team goals. And those team goals will be tied to the larger organizational goals. And it, it's not just a, a sort of cascading effect like we used to do in, in the performance management and then, you know, figure out where you, you know, whether you've met these goals that you may not have had any control over. These are, you know, what are you going to actually do so that you drive outcomes and that you deliver value? And so you've got to think about who are the people that can actually get that done. And it's a lot of, um, I see a lot of vendors talk about um, uh, potential over, you know, sort of, um, you know, what's on your resume, because what worked for you before uh, may not work for you in a new, yeah. you know, agile model. You were great at, at product, but you were doing waterfall, right? Now we need you to be working in an agile environment. There's different mm -hmm. tools. There's different. There's a different set of behavior, you know, sort of expectations, and and those things aren't necessarily, um, you know, relevant anymore. But if you have this, maybe you're good at that. So you know, working on, you know, inf trying to infer things from people's prior experiences or infer things from their, uh, their social media, you know, content. What do we know about this? But we can get inside this person's head and understand how they think and how that may complement the way this team thinks or the way this leader thinks. Because if you just bring on yet another of, you know, um, you know, Ivy Leaguer or X, you know, Google, you know, developer or whatever, like why? Why you you don't even know why you need that. You just want it because everyone else wants it. Well, it's fascinating problem because everyone who's ever gotten a job understands the concept of how to get a job. It's it's something that we've almost everyone has done, and yet when you look at it from a data or evaluation perspective, and also like a human bias and psychology perspective, it's a really hard problem to solve yeah. because uh -huh. humans are kind of incapable of evaluating something that they don't personally know. And so how do you evaluate someone that you don't identify with and, and you don't really have any kind of context for their, like for me to, I've never been in the military um, and I have very little context for what a military uh, career trajectory and what happens on a day-to-day -day basis and, and what happens there. So somebody coming from, as somebody who's a veteran now coming in trying to show me what their leadership skills are just by showing me their resume and by talking about their experiences in an interview it's i still can't really it, it doesn't make any sense to me on a personal level so it's hard to mm -hmm. evaluate that i, I wonder yeah. how you think about those nerdy aspects of evaluating candidates yeah i i've um I will tell you, I've, I've taken quite a few of these uh, assessments uh, myself over the last um, couple months and they were, you know, I could cherry pick and say certain things weren't really that accurate or, or try to get, try to think to the question, a couple of the questions that they asked where they may have inferred something from that. I mean, I think nothing's ever going to be uh, perfect, but I think overall the assessments were, were fairly accurate. I mean, there's certain things that I'm, um, good at and and whether that's because I'm a I'm a you know a, a Virgo or a Southpaw or you know what, whatever it is there might be some inherent you know things and, and traits in there um, but you know I've got some uh, I thought I was an introvert it turns out I'm actually kind of an ambivert so mm -hmm. when I actually I, I love just 
mainly listening, but when I actually know what I'm talking about, then I'll speak up. Uh Um, and, um, and so, um, I think it, you know, it helped me to learn a little bit more, um, about myself and, and also that some of the roles I've had before, um, I got them because people trusted me and they needed somebody they trusted in, in that particular role, but there are roles that I wouldn't really go to again, because I know that it's not the optimal fit for me, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it won't, um, it's not in their or my best interest to just put a warm body, reasonably intelligent guy, you know, yeah. into, into that role because there's chances are there's another uh, role in some other, you know, group that I might be a better, you know, fit for. And, you know, if I'm a better fit, everyone's better off. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a great way to, to conclude this conversation. I, I mean, we could keep talking. You're, you're speaking our language, man. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm glad, um, you know, I'm glad we got to have this conversation and, you know, um, yeah, you know, honestly, I think the future of work is companies have to change, have to change their approach to talent, to environment, to culture, all of it uh, yeah. moving forward. So, so thanks, Bob. This was great, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thank you, everybody, for continuing to watch. Um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye.